Welcome to The Lost Debate, a show for politically eclectics. I'm Ravi Gupta, and this is an exciting episode. We have somebody who I would consider uh, one of the most important educators in the world, Sal Khan, who created uh, in the mid-2000s a online platform, which is really, I think, minimizing what this thing is, uh, Khan Academy. You've heard us talk about it a lot on this show. There are, uh, last time I checked on the internet, uh, over 8,000 videos in subjects like math, science, literature, U.S. history, computer science, test preparation, SAT, the MCAT, the LSAT. And what makes this platform amazing, among many other things, is that it's completely free. And it's translated into a ton of different languages around the world. And as we've talked about in previous segments, it's now incorporating AI, and it's on the vanguard of using AI to augment instruction and so they say, never meet your heroes. So I'm on dangerous territory here. But Sal, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you. Very, very uh, flattering intro. Well, Sal, I used to be a school principal in North Nashville, and our kids came in and they were on dramatically different learning levels. So kids, some kids came in at the fifth grade level and didn't know how to read. And some kids came in at the fifth grade level and they were reading at ninth grade levels. And this created a real challenge of differentiation, you know, for our listeners is kind of a term, jargony term that just means how do you as one teacher with 25 to 30 kids in a classroom, how do you get each kid what they need? And in almost every interview I've heard you talk about Khan Academy, you talk about that as being one of the central areas of focus for Khan Academy. So maybe, you know, instead of starting off like about how you tutored your cousin and all that, you've talked about this story a million times. Let's get right into the the sort of the heart of the matter of teaching. What does Khan Academy do to help that teacher in a situation like that? Yeah, the way we not only imagine it being used, but it's now used this way in tens of thousands of classrooms, hundreds of thousands, in fact, uh, where a, a teacher can let students work at their own time and pace on Khan Academy. And you mentioned, you know, a lot of folks associate us with videos, but most of our resources as a nonprofit actually go behind the software platform where students can get exercises with immediate feedback from a very deep item bank, learn at their own pace. The videos are there to support it. There's other things there that support them. Uh, teachers get dashboards on how all the students are performing. So that already, let's say three, four, five times a week, teachers can have those students working for maybe 20 minutes on Khan Academy. And even then there could be nice ways for them to support each other as long as they have nice ground rules of not supporting the, each other too much, uh, the students. And then the teachers get a real-time read on where every student is. So they'll be able to spot that student who might be racing ahead and is a grade level or two ahead. And they'll be able to spot those students who are having some difficulty, not even with the grade level work, but clearly have some um, unfinished learning, people say it now, you know, from, from previous grade levels. And the software is going to try to support those students as well as possible. But we know that teacher is instrumental where then they can say, all right, this is an algebra class, but it's very clear that these five students are having trouble with negative numbers. That's why they're having trouble with the algebra, even though they should have learned that in sixth or seventh grade. So I, as a teacher, will now take those five students aside, not for the whole hour, but maybe for 15 minutes, to do a focused intervention on negative numbers. And now the other 20, 25 students continue to work at their own time and pace, so you don't have to slow them down. And then once these kids start to feel comfortable with negative numbers, they can go practice that independently on Khan Academy. And now the teacher can work with the next group of students uh, to figure out how they could support them better. Or if all of the students are progressing reasonably well, then they can use the class time to do uh, deeper simulations, games, 
group problem solving, uh, pair up students with, with each other. Uh, now we're also going into a world where generative AI, I think, can take things even to another level. But the, the basic principle is, is that we think there's ways where at the class of 20, 25, 30, 35 students, you can get far more personalization, far more ability to reach. Uh, you, you mentioned even before the pandemic, your average American classroom had about three grade levels of spread in it. Post-pandemic, the numbers I've seen, it's about six grade levels of spread, um, which is merely, it's, 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 it's an impossible, it's impossible task. task. Yeah. And, you know, I remember, you know, I ran a, a schools like, I don't know, must have been 2010 to 2016, 2017. And it was kind of as your platform was really taking off into the mainstream. If I remember correctly, like I think you, 2006 to 2008 is when you become like an official nonprofit and you're, uh, you're, you're running it uh, in a more professional way. You're working at a hedge fund, right? From what I understand, you were helping your cousin and you started off by just doing videos. At what point did those videos become something more professional and something approaching what you just described in terms of the backend support for teachers and students, the dashboards, the differentiation and all that? How did you even get to that from one set of videos for one person? Yeah, it actually kind of went the other way around. Um, in 2004, I started tutoring my cousins. Word spreads my family free tutoring's going on. 2005, I'm tutoring a lot of cousins. And in 2005, I was constantly looking for ways for them to get more practice. And you could dig around and find on the internet, this website has 10 problems that, one, they ran out very quickly. It was taking me a lot of work to find exactly what my cousins should work on. And then I had no way of knowing what they were working on. So it was in 2005 that I actually started whipping together some software uh, that would essentially give them as much practice as they need on some of their core skills. And then for me as their, their teacher or their tutor, to be able to monitor that. And I called it Khan Academy. The domain name was available. It was a family project. Uh, and a little part of me thought that, hey, look, software, if it works for 15 cousins, one day it could work for 15 million cousins. It could work for a lot of a lot more folks. It was in 2006, a lot of my friends knew I was working on this project as a side. I was still at the hedge fund. And a friend of mine, his name's Zuli Ramzan, suggested, hey, why don't you scale up by making some videos for your cousins? I initially thought YouTube feels like a, almost frivolous platform. Why would I do that? But then I gave it a shot. And my cousins famously told me they like me better on YouTube than in person. <laughs> Other people were starting to watch it. So that really helped the discoverability at Khan Academy. But if even if today someone were to go to our YouTube channel and go sort by date uploaded and go all the way back to November of 2006, you're going to hear me say things like, welcome to level four equations. And you're like, what is level four equations? In the software I was writing for my cousins, I had a skill called level four equations. And that was the video that was a supplement to it. Now you can imagine YouTube took on a life of its own. It became very discoverable for a lot of folks. And then it was in late, it was actually early 2008 that we set up as a nonprofit. Even then I didn't think that I was gonna quit my day job. But in 2009, there were a few hundred thousand folks using it. And then it, I quit my day job to see if I could get philanthropic funding to, to do it full time. But when we got that philanthropic funding, whenever I talked to any of these groups, they, they always knew about the videos. And I said, well, you know, the videos I like and I, I enjoy making them and I, I want to keep going and I want to make them available in all of the languages of the world. But I think the core of the learning will actually be through students practicing, getting feedback in these teacher tools. The first teacher tool I made for myself back in 2005. Uh, and then we had a, a, a real teacher. <laughs> you started using it in 2007. Uh, but that's where we got the funding to start building our engineering, our design, our product team to, to start building out all of that. 
what's amazing is that that was a much more primitive version of YouTube than we have today. I mean, obviously the functionality is all the same, but it was, it was before this age where people are listening. Like, I think people now have so many people in their lives who make YouTube videos. You must've been the only person you knew who was anywhere in the vicinity of this kind of audience on YouTube. It had to be right. Like, there wasn't the influencer culture that you have today. Um, I mean, and I don't mean to denigrate influencer culture. I watched tons of YouTube videos to figure out all kinds of things. And so like, this was kind of like a uncharted path. Like you were kind of hacking through the bushes in a way. Yeah, it was early days. And yeah, there definitely wasn't influencer culture. No one was making their living being an influencer or a YouTube celebrity at the time. And honestly, even, even, even though my journey has a lot of those bones to it, I never viewed myself as that. I always viewed, uh, you know, to some degree, we used YouTube to, to almost just host our videos. We never did the like, subscribe here, you know. Yeah. Even though you guys do well on YouTube, it's not the primary place that people should go, right? You have like over 8 million views, but the website is so much more important than the YouTube. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the views are in the billions, the subscribers are in the, the you know, I think uh, on the order of what you just mentioned. But most of the people are going to, to Khan Academy where we have 150 million registered users. But to your point, Yes, it was a hard thing. I wasn't the first person on YouTube to make educational videos. I was probably the first person to do it systematically and comprehensively. And I'd like to believe it a high quality. Um, and then that took on a life of its own. But amongst my own friend circle, all my friends are accomplished professionals and venture capitalists and hedge fund analysts and managers and doctors and lawyers and all of these things. And so, and my, back in 2000 and six, 2007, my, my, our first child was born in 2008, you know, to, for a, a respectable adult like myself to quit their day job, especially when you have a, a, a new child in the house and your expenses have gone up. Uh, yeah. People gave you weird looks. It's a tough sell. And you were telling people at this hedge fund, I think I heard you say this to Adam Grant, that you, that you wanted to start a school one day. Like actually you were looking for, you know, the resources and permission structure to start a school on your own terms. So this is something you've harbored for a while. Yeah, you know, I've always, all the way going back to high school, I, I would just look at what's going on. And there, there are some good things about high school, but I'm like, there's got to be a better way of doing this. Too many people are getting checked out. Too many people are bored or lost most of the time. Learning can be fun, but it's just not happening that way in, in, in most cases. Then I went to college and I saw more of that. And I, I got drawn to software and I said, well, you know, there's, there's got to be something that software could do that can scale. And I wasn't the first person to think that. Steve Jobs famously said that, you know, the PC could be the treadmill for the mind and, and other people ha had been working on it. But I, I kept at early stages of my career saying, Sal, you can't afford to either become a professor or work on educational tools. You have loans to pay, et cetera, et cetera. So I find myself at a, as an analyst at a hedge fund, but I would, I, I did tell folks uh, as, you know, back in 2003, 2004, I'm going to do this. I enjoyed my hedge fund job. It wasn't like I didn't like it. It was very intellectually stimulating and it was helping me pay back <laughs> loans very quickly. But I would tell my friends and even my fiance now wife, she used to give me a little bit of flack. She's like, look, you have these skills and you're using it just to make money. And I was like, well, I'm going to do this until you know I can start a school on my own terms. Uh, and then, then that's what I'm going to do. That's going to be the second half of my career. I'm going to be the Dumbledore at a school that I get to create. And so that was always in the back of my mind. So whenever there was an opportunity to, to get close to the education space, I usually was drawn to it. So when my cousins needed help, yes, I wanted to help them. That was first and foremost. 
But when I started making tools for them, it was with that in the back of my mind, like, hey, I, I have some ideas here and let me see if I can play around with things to see if I can get some insights that, that other people haven't fully gotten traction on. And I would love to group together, before we get to the AI front, I would love to group together sort of Khan Academy pre-AI and your Khan Lab School. So you started an in-person school, which I, as I understand is a K-12 school that has over 200 kids and you know, recently, I think past few years, has graduated his first 12th grade class. Congratulations, by the way, on that. I know that's hard work. And I'd love to just ask you about your philosophy on education. Uh, and, and one of the, the subjects that I've been, we've been talking and debating a lot about on the show is mastery-based learning. And, and I'm just going to throw you my theory out on this, which is that more schools should break down the traditional time-based approach to learning, meaning like, hey, Sal, you're you're a 12th grader and a 12th grader is going to spend a year on this subject and try to break down the walls between those grades and say, well, Sal, you need to learn, you know, differential equations. And then as soon as you're done, you're going to move on to something else. Uh, and that we should make room for that within our schools. Is that what you've done at your lab school? Because I, I, I couldn't tell, but it certainly is how your website is set up. Yeah. As early as 2009, 2010, 2011, I would give speeches about Khan Academy, and I've always positioned it as it's just not like an online help tool. It's there, it has a pedagogical viewpoint, which is people should be able to learn at a pace that's appropriate to them. If they haven't learned something, they should get another shot at goal. You shouldn't just push them along and they're either gonna get lost or slow them down because they get bored. And that idea of always having the opportunity incentive to revisit something and get better at it, first of all, that's probably the oldest way of learning. It's almost surprising that we always we, we ever thought we should do it any other way. And it is the way that people who do athletics or musical instruments or anything still learn. Uh, but it was already coined. It's called mastery learning. And But the only reason why it never really went mainstream, there, there have been actually very successful experiments with mastery learning 100 years ago, but it wasn't considered scalable. It was considered, you have to, you have, to have people regrading things and different worksheets. It's very logistically difficult. But we said, look, now that's what computers and the internet and web-based software is, is good at. So we always had that point of view. A related idea to mastery learning is competency-based with uh, credentials or credit. Right now, to your point, if you apply to a local at the regional or the state university, they'll say, you need to take three years of, of math. You need to take two years of foreign language. It doesn't matter how long you sat in a chair. What matters is whether you learned it or not. So they should say, you need to have mastery of mathematics up to pre-calculus or calculus. You need to be able to write at this level. You should be able to have a conversation in at least one other language. It should be more based what you're capable of versus what you sat in a chair to do. So there were all of these principles. And then there was the principle, you know, I've always been annoyed by the debates between, let's call it the traditionalist educators and the progressive educators. The traditionalists would stereotypically be more of like, no, it's really important for students to have a lot of these core skills and get fluency and this or that, and be well-read and read these series of books, uh, while the progressive would say, no, you know, we don't want to drill and kill. We just want to do exploration and we want more project-based or real world. And I was like, no, you, you shouldn't want both. <laughs> they're, they're both actually very important. So I wrote all of this in a book that was published in 2012, The One World Schoolhouse, but it's one thing to write about. It. It's a whole other thing to try to implement it. And my first, or my oldest was entering kindergarten. And I was like, selfishly, I want them to go to the school that I've always talked about starting. And now I had a platform. I had a, a name, so to speak, in the space. Uh, so maybe other parents might, might be drawn to it. So yeah, we started a school 
we started Khan Lab School back in 2014. It's now, you know, it's getting its third graduating classes. All three of my kids go there, but it's personalization, mastery, you know, competency-based. When human beings are together, which is most of the time, they should be interacting with each other. A lot of people think, oh, this must be, you know, started by Sal and he does ed tech. It must yeah, be kids at their computers, like it's Wally or something. Yeah. <laughs> I, I encourage anyone, go to KLS with a stopwatch and then go to the, the any of the surrounding schools, which are actually pretty good schools in this area, and see how much time kids get to actually collaborate and talk and interact with each other at Con Lab School versus any other school. I think it's going to be five times more at Con Lab School. There are, there, there's no lecture. Most of class is not in front of a computer. Most of class is your collaborative working on things. But there is some time when you're at a computer, but there you're very efficiently getting exposure or fluency in some skills. And even then you're not in isolation. You're getting supported by your peers and, and, and other teachers. Yeah. And so make that tangible in a sense. So um, fifth grade, which is you know the grade I talked about just before, like, give me an example of like something that would happen. I know you're probably not keeping tags every week, but like, for example, what could be happening this week, this month, this year in the fifth grade on tomorrow? Yeah, like it, it could be, um, it, let's say the, the the STEM lead or STEM teacher, and you know, we, we do experiment with blend. And it's the lab school too, so we're always experiment, taking experiments. But let's say that fifth grade, first of all, the student's going to be in a math class it's not based on their age. It's going to be based on what they're ready for. So in that class, there might be kids at roughly different ages and sometimes at different levels as well. And how much of a spread do you see on those those ages? Well, it, it's interesting. My dream, and we, it's been logistically difficult to get to the pure dream, is to have all the students doing math at the same time. Yeah, agreed. And, and, and yeah. so then you have, the tw- you, know, you have the 12th graders and you have the five-year-olds all in the same place and they can help each other. That's the dream. What's actually implemented in, you know, who, who would have thought that the, one of the biggest frictions for innovation is like the schedule or logistics? Yes. And, and I could talk more about that. We're, I mean, we're solving I, I it. I could give you some. I've, you I've probably devoted at least a full year of my life to changing schedules, uh, trying to get around yeah, tutoring. Exactly. I'm a free fan of letting it be a free-for-all. But anyway, but the way it would work is, yeah, you could be in a classroom of, uh, you know, my youngest right now, you mentioned fifth grade, he is... He just turned nine, so depending on where he would be in third or fourth grade, but he's his math class, they're kind of at a, quote, sixth grade level, but even there, it's not like a strict sixth grade level because most of the class is that them doing collaborative problem solving, um, not on Khan Academy. They're, you know, the teacher will say, all right, let's go into our teams and here's an interesting thing, discuss or see if you can explain it. And it's like a other. real world problem, like, a, you know, trains traveling down the tracks. And it could be know. both. It could be both. I, in math, yeah. it could be both. I, I'm not, you know, I'm not a purist on that. I think sometimes it is valuable to get some of the concocted problems because <laughs> you can tackle that skill. But sometimes it could be a very hands-on real world problem. Uh, we do actually a lot of that on, on in the sciences and the humanities. I mean, on the, uh, you know, my, my oldest who's, you know, in his humanities class, it's not even broken into English class or history class. You know, he has to construct a podcast or they're doing mystery novels. They're, they're doing a lot of really, really interesting things. But in, in, in math, yeah, they're going to be using Khan Academy both independently and in the class for maybe 20 minutes a day, 15 minutes a day in that fifth grade class. And even then the teacher's able to take kids out and do more focused interventions. Students are also supporting each other, but the bulk of, of the time is actually used for a group problem solving. So they're getting that collaboration, that communication. Humanities, we definitely encourage a lot of discussion, like like lectures, traditional lecture stage on the stage is, is pretty much a no-no at Con Lab School. Like you can give an explanation for five or 10 minutes. Sometimes you need to do that for context setting, but you should not be reading lecture notes at, a, at the front of the room while everyone has to be quiet and listen to or pretend to listen to you. 
And so that naturally makes things like Socratic dialogue, uh, games, simulations to be the, the de facto at the school. In, in thinking about your sort of first decade or so running the school, what were some of the biggest sort of realism learns that, lessons that you had to learn where you're like, oh my God, I want to do this. And then you did it and you're like, ah, actually not as easy as I thought. And then on the flip side, what was actually just as awesome as you thought it would be that you've tried out? It sounds like the differentiation is as awesome as you thought it would be. Yeah. So maybe that's be- the answer to that. And to be clear, I don't run the school on a day-to-day basis. I, um, uh, I'm i the chairperson of the school, and we have a head of school and head of upper and lower school. So they're running the school on a day-to-day basis. But in terms of the things that have proven more difficult or surprising uh, than when I started, one is self-paced learning is great. I still strongly believe in that. And some kids, you give it to them and they race ahead. And it's not always the precocious kids. Sometimes it was also some of the kids who are struggling in a traditional environment that do very well in this. But you do learn, and we, we have conversations about this at Con Lab School all the time, that you do have to set some expectations and some deadlines for a lot of kids. Otherwise, they're going to call it in. So, so we are talking about things like minimum pacing. And if they're having trouble keeping up with some minimum pace, how do we flex so that they have more resources to do that? So that's one. You know, I think I, in the early days, underestimated the, you would know this as a school leader, the community complexity of schools. <laughs> You know, <laughs> you, yeah. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Awkward laughs. Yeah, I mean, look, you have at least three stakeholders, maybe more, where you have the the faculty, you have the students, and you have the parents. And yeah. capital you, P, capital P, parents. and it's unfortunate. And this happens in a lot of organizations, but you especially see it in parents, where people can be very misaligned, and people are arguing strongly for very different things. I mean, we've seen this at KLS. People send their kids to the school because that's a good school. They heard someone at their neighbor sending their kids thriving, but then they come and they're like, Hey, I, you know, my kid's in a class that's being taught by a high school student. That's not cool. I'm paying tuition. And we're like, no, have you read the book? <laughs> like that's actually considered the high school. And by the way, one day your kid will be that high school student. And when I write recommendations, those are the kids I write recommendations for the ones that are actually teaching multivariable calculus, not the ones that are, but some parents are misaligned there, but other parents at the other extreme where they're like, wait, you know, I thought we were just going to be building stuff the whole time, but why are you making sure my kids actually understand how to factor a polynomial? We're like, have you read the book? So there's that alignment piece. And then being in a somewhat high-strung environment like Silicon Valley, yeah, there's, there's, I would say about 5% and hopefully lower over time. And, you know, I'm not pointing fingers at anyone uh, today, but where people sometimes you know who you are yeah they know who they they become all about their own kids or their own insecurities or their own obsessions and they make everyone else's life horrible that's not cool so we've we've started having a a stronger spine around you know do do you want the faculty to spend all their time with you or with your student with with the children and we've we've been getting better but but that's you know that that community management and alignment piece i have learned even at Khan academy the importance of just being clear what you're doing and also clear what you're not doing which is very important i think too many schools say oh we want to teach this we want to teach that language as well we want to do this we want to do this and but before you know it you're trying to do 20 things pretty badly as opposed to try to do the six or seven things that you could do really 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 well so those you know the things that have been better than expected you know whenever we let the vision actually have breathing room, it's doing amazing. You know, we have another organization, Con World School, that we've done with Arizona State University that takes, it's about two years old now, that takes a lot of the Con Lab School ideas, but puts it into a virtual, more scalable environment. 
And we're seeing these high school students. I, I was skeptical in, initially. I, one reason why I'm still not sharing the data like super publicly is because I, people think I'm, I'm making things up. But Steve Levitt, Freakonomics fame, famous economist at UChicago, he's also been involved with the school. And, you know, we looked at the data together like, no, this is this is real data. And this is you're talking about the the world school, not the lab the world school. school. Yeah, but yeah. it's the same model. But, you know, in terms of what's better than expected, we're seeing kids get three grade levels in a year consistently on average, on average. And this is all over the world per the name. It's accessible all over the world. It's still probably half the students are in the United States. But we're seeing things like that. Another side effect that I didn't expect, I didn't even write about it in One World Schoolhouse, is when you do mastery learning, you know, traditional schools, and no teacher wants to be their kid's antagonist, but sometimes that framework can happen because the student says, oh, you're going to be the person that decides to pass me or not. And so it becomes like that somewhat adversarial. But when you have mastery learning, everyone is on the same side trying to get you above the standard, trying to get you to fluency or mastery. And if you're not there yet, hey, I'm your teacher. I, I got your back. We're going to still work on it. And you know, this the, the transcript isn't some punitive tool. Yeah, you can have an approaching mastery, which you could perceive as a B for now. But if next semester you do something that shows you clearly know that material now, we'll turn that into an A. You know, I tell that to some people in traditional education, like that's cheating. I'm like, no, it's not. If, you know, <laughs> we had an example where we brought in an educator um, they were new and they were, they were working with some of the seniors in, in computer science. This was a few years ago. And one of the seniors wanted to revisit an evaluation on their mastery from, from something they did freshman year and it was in coding. And this new faculty member says, well, you know, it just doesn't, it feels like they're cheating. Like they're, they're able to improve that grade. And I'm like, well, let me ask you a question. Do they know that material now? And the, the teacher said, of course they do. That was on four loops, you know, very basic programming technique. And the student is now actually managing Stanford students at NASA in his summer internship in coding. He clearly knows about for loops. I was like, okay, so what's actually inaccurate is that thing that we have on the transcript from ninth grade saying approaching mastery in coding. This kid is actually now an advanced coder. We should just, the transcript should just be a, a snapshot of what the student is actually capable of. And that's all, that's all that was happening. Well, I think part of the issue is that these traditional grades are it's almost a reflection of more than the mastery in, in a traditional school, right? It's your character and your work ethic and whether you're behaved in class and all of those things are, are embedded in the grade. And so the teacher is going to be stubborn and not want to change that grade there because they're going to be like, Harry, you know, had his head down in class the whole time and yada, yada. Even though he, you know, wound up learning the material eventually, they, they want to build in more into that grade than they want. And, and I think like, hopefully these schools now are starting to separate these things out. Like Harry should be assessed on that behavior, in my opinion, but he, we should treat them separately. If that makes any sense. Yeah, that's another thing. I mean, you're, you're touching on a point that we literally, I had a discussion, a philosophical discussion about this exact issue because we were seeing, most of the students were not misusing the system, but there was, let's call it 5% of students who were viewing, you know, mastery learning as like, I don't have to make my deadlines. I can turn something in late and I can always revisit it later. And that puts an, un, un, an undue burden on the teachers because they have to evaluate it, how many shots at gold you have. So yeah, we, we, what we're doing is the exact same thing is one, you, you, you have to make that first deadline. If you don't, you're not going to get more shots at goal. And if you don't, it's a different dimension than your academic mastery. To your point, it's a mastery of like your work habits and your, you know, your commitment to a community. And, and even there, we don't feel that like if you had a bad attitude in ninth grade, that it should like completely destroy your chances of 
getting into a good college if if, if you improve your attitude right uh, over yeah, time for but sure. it's it is a different dimension that I, I agree that's the thing we learned i didn't write about it in in the book initially but that's a real thing so uh, you know let's change tack and, and talk about this experiment with ai uh, or pilot with ai uh, ai it's probably experiments not it's, it's not strong enough words. You got early access to ChatGPT. How did this even come about? How did that conversation even start? Yeah, not not just ChatGPT, but GPT-4. And, you know, folks who are a little bit closer to that know that ChatGPT, when it came out in November of 22, it's based on GPT-3.5. So what happened is summer of 2022, I got an email from Sam Altman and Greg Brockman, who I knew through random, like I would see them at like tech events and things like that. Uh, But they, they said, hey, you know, we're working on our next generation model. And we think this is going to be like the model that wakes people up. So we want to lead with social positive use cases, with organizations folks trust that also have the technical capability to make use of this. And we thought of y'all. And, and I think they reached out to us before even most of OpenAI knew, knew what was going on. And so when they showed us what, what would eventually be called GPT-4, that's when I was like, wow, I, I had been tracking GPT-1, 2, and 3 they were amazing from a technological point of view, but they were still didn't seem intelligent in, in, in a way that would be useful. But this was, it still had issues and still does have issues around errors, hallucinations, et cetera. We could go on and on and on. But this was the first moment I'm like, wow, the pace at which this is getting better. And already with some layers of engineering, we might be able to mitigate a lot of these risks, put some guardrails, safety issues, et cetera. We, we can solve this. This gets us that much closer to these, these ideals of personalization, mastery, emulating what a great tutor would do, being a teaching assistant for teachers, saving them a ton of time, just you know, making the classroom m- much more student-centered. So we went all in. We signed a non-disclosure agreement with OpenAI in the fall of 2022. And what exactly did you see before we even move on? So like when you say four, like gave you a different impression, like what did you see in that in- initial interaction that gave you that impression? Because clearly you're right, but like I, I wouldn't even know how to gauge that that fast. So uh, this was like August 2022. We were on a video conference. It was myself, our chief learning officer, Sam Altman and Greg Brockman. And, you know, they Greg shares the screen and um, he shows me a, an image of an AP biology multiple choice question. And he says, Sal, what do you, what do you think is the answer? You know, I read it carefully. I'm like, oh yeah, it's C. It, it was a question about osmosis. I, I still remember it. And, and he's like, okay. Let's ask the bot. And the bot said, oh, the answer is C. Okay, that's interesting. And then I, I said, ask it to explain why it's C. And explain it. I'm like, yeah, that's exactly right. And I'm like, explain why the other choices aren't at C. It did it. And then I'm starting to get chills at this point. I'm goosebumps. I'm, and I'm like, well, ask it to generate five more questions like this one. And it did it. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> this, is, <laughs> this is, changes everything. And you know, I, I, later we realized that it can't do that perfectly. You have to have humans in the loop, et cetera, et cetera. But the rate at which it was getting better and the, the market difference that GPT-4 showed that wasn't true of the previous generation models was it seemed to actually have a handle on knowledge and be able to do some reasoning around it that GPT-3 couldn't. And then that weekend, they gave myself and a few of the rest of us direct access and we realized that we could have it take on personas of say a tutor or a counselor and do it quite, you know, do it pretty robustly and not give you the answer, but ask, do the pedagogically correct thing. It wasn't, and then we're like, okay, this is a very, very, very big deal. It's interesting when chat GPT came out in November, I slacked Greg Brockman. I'm like, hey, what's going on, man? You you have us under an NDA and you're launching something. And, and he's like, no, this 
all we did is put a chat interface on GPT 3.5, which had been out for a few months. But that they OpenAI themselves were surprised that anyone cared about chat GPT, at least at that level. We all thought GPT-4 is the big one. And it, it still is dramatically better than GPT-3.5. And I was pretty bummed. I was like, wow, people are going to judge this technology based on chat GPT. And we're doing all this work with guardrails and making it really work well as a tutor. Uh, and, and school districts were starting to ban it. And I had to stay quiet you know, <laughs> while I was under this NDA. In hindsight, it was a blessing because uh, by the time March came around, March of 2023, a lot of people said, look, there's a lot of power in this technology. If we could just mitigate the cheating issue, if we could put guardrails, if we can make it special purpose for the education use case. And we were almost able to say, this is exactly what we've been working on for the last six months. Here you go. <laughs> uh, and so the reception has been very positive. And so, okay, so you you and your team who, you know, this is a team that you had created to do this sort of traditional Khan Academy work, like everything we talked about, like giving accessible flipped classroom education with mastery-based learning, assessments, student dashboards so students can keep track of their learning, a teacher dashboard so teachers can keep track of their learning, and doing it in a way that's accessible in different languages, across continents, et cetera. So you have learning specialists, you have technologists, et cetera. Did you have the team that was able to, at that point, that was able to even grapple with GPT-4, or did you have to hire up for that? Simple answer is yes. Um, you know, most people are surprised when they see the intellectual horsepower on the Khan Academy team. Uh, you know, our head of infrastructure, Craig Silverstein, he was Google's first employee. When Larry and Sergey wanted to start Google, they went down the hall at the Stanford PhD program and said, hey, Craig, can you build us Google? So that's the guy who's leading our infrastructure. Our head of front-end infrastructure, the people doing, you know, the user interface and all of that, it's a gentleman by the name of John Resig. He's one of the world's most famous programmers. So, and we have many, many more folks like that. So yes, in a lot of ways, you know, pound for pound, people, our team was almost more ready for this than, than a lot of people uh, might suspect. But then on top of that, yes, we are accelerating our investment on this side of the house. And so all of these people who have commanded amazing salaries, yourself included, have decided to go work for a nonprofit because of the mission. I mean, there, there are good things happening in this world, Sal, it seems. I think so. Look, in the early days, a lot of people, including myself, I was wondering, look, maybe I'll be willing to do it, but how many people could you get to work at a not-for-profit? And the good thing is our board does believe that you know working at a not-for-profit should not be a, a, a vow of poverty, that we should pay well. And we do try to pay a market wages on, on a cash basis. We obviously can't give stock because there is no ownership. I, no one owns Khan Academy. I don't own Khan Academy. Um, but with that said, many of the folks on the team could go across the street to Google or Meta or Microsoft and make three times what we're, you know, with stock and everything else. They could make millions in, in, in some cases. Uh, but it, it shows you that, you know, we're not hiring tens of thousands of people. We're, the whole Khan Academy team is over 200 folks. You know, in a given year, we're hiring tens of people. And there are enough um, people at the intersection of amazingly gifted at their craft. And they want to express their gifts in favor of mission. It gives them meaning. As long as they get paid enough to live, let's call it an upper upper middle class lifestyle, there's, there are people who would rather work on meaning. Um, you know, in the early days, Eric Schmidt used to be on our board at the time he was CEO of Google. And I said, Eric, you know, any advice that you can have on recruiting and retention? And Eric said, well, what's your, what's your yield rate when you make job offers? And I'm like, it's about 70%. And then I showed him some of the people and he's like, look, 
And he's like, where, where else did they have offers from? He's like, oh, all of our people have offers at Google and Facebook and Microsoft. And he's like, well, you should be giving us advice because we're paying that same person twice as much and we're only getting 30% yield. <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> and I guess the answer is, in hindsight, we're giving them a mission. We're giving them a true, you know, true meaning. Well, uh, you know, on this AI front, uh, we'll link in the show notes for listeners to uh, the earlier segments that we've done that kind of go through the functionality. So I don't want to get to too much into that. But so you go from this point where you see GPT-4 and you get your team together. What immediately, did you ma have this mapped out in your head pretty quickly? You're like, all right, I have seen what this is capable of doing in terms of scaffolded questioning and smart hints, et cetera. And like emulating certain voices of a tutor, even historical figures, which you have on now. Like, did you have that kind of in your head and you're like, just go do it? Or did you guys have to sit in a room for a month or so and kind of brainstorm every possible use case? I mean, we're still brainstorming more and more use cases every day. From like that first weekend with GPT-4, it was pretty clear that that tutoring use case, that let's call it guide on the side that can help unblock you, could be pretty powerful. It took a little while for us to figure out how to put guardrails, et cetera. There was a big debate inside the organization about this. Should we be leading here? Um, there were a lot of flaws with these AIs that, you know, how do we mitigate these things? If we're talking about under 18 users, how do we make sure that they're not getting into weird conversations? But we got to a place where like, let's turn all this into features. Let's make it so we have a second AI, moderates the conversation. We'll tell a parent or, or a teacher if something weird is happening, makes everything transparent doesn't cheat for you, but Socratically in a pedagogically sound way. So, so we, we, we started doing that. And then I think as we got, let's say, end of 2022, we started realizing, hey, this could be just as big of a deal for teachers too, to help develop lesson plans, et cetera. And then we started thinking, like, why stop at a tutor? Like, we could do things that would seem like science fiction. And one of the big ahas was uh, over Christmas break 2022, I was testing some ideas out with my, at the time, 11-year-old daughter. And she was working on an activity where it, it, the AI wouldn't write for her, but it would write with her. So it'd say, hey, let's write a story. What kind of story you want to write? And she's like, I want to write a, you know, whatever, a, a, an adventure story. And she's like, oh, let's, let's brainstorm some ideas. But she's doing, my daughter was doing most of the work. And so her and the AI were writing a story about a social media influencer named Samantha, who was stuck on a beautiful desert island, uh, but had no access to the internet and no access to a phone. <laughs> and at one point, the character Samantha, and my, my, the AI kind of gave a little bit of dialogue and then my daughter added to it. But the, the, the character was having like an anxiety attack because it was so beautiful, but she couldn't share it with anyone. And my daughter's like, oh, I, I want to talk to Samantha. I want to make her feel better. And I said, well, I see re no reason why you can't. So then my daughter says, I'd like to talk to Samantha. And so then the AI goes, I am now Samantha. And so my daughter says, hey, Samantha, you know, it's okay if you can't share it with anyone, like just live in the moment and you just need to breathe. And my, my 11 year old daughters get, and then Samantha's like, that's easy for you to say Dia, but if you just saw how beautiful it is here and I get, you know, that's how I get my, you know, fix every day by getting likes and, and my, and my daughter's <laughs> telling it like, that's not what matters. What matters is your, and, 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 and I was like, this is mind blowing. My daughter is having a meaningful conversation with a character in a book that she's writing with an AI. And that's when I started, I was like, well, my, I'm too narrow-minded. I have to start expanding what's possible here. So that's when we started thinking about what if you could talk to Winnie the Pooh or the Great Gatsby? What if you could have a debate with the AI? What if you could draft the Federalist Papers with Hamilton and, and get into a debate? 
this is not just the holodeck on Star Trek anymore. This is actually doable now. Wow. And there's an amazing uh, TED talk you gave on this that we'll, we'll link and, and then a follow up a uh, longer speech you gave at a conference shortly after that, that we'll link in the show notes where you go through a lot of the functionality. What does this look like in math? What does this look like in reading and history, et cetera? Uh, one thing that's important to note though, is that you've thought a lot about some of the downsides of this. And, and one of the uh, key changes or features that you have is students can look at what the AI knows about them. So like the AI is learning about student tendencies, their personalities, et cetera, and it's storing that somewhere. Correct me if I'm wrong, but students can go get that information. They could delete it if they want to, right? That's right. So one of the things that we've been working on and we're continuing to work on is for this to be a really effective tutor, it can't just be a transactional one conversation at a time. It needs memory of you. It should know that, hey, we talked about this yesterday or this is what you're interested in. And so now we already have built it so that if you go on Conmigo and you're, say, watching a video on Khan Academy and you say, why do I need to learn this? Conmigo is usually going to say something like, well, what do you care about? <laughs> and let's say you tell Conmigo, well, I really want to be a, um, I want to be, I want to make podcasts in the future. Then Conmigo is like, well, you know, this is why this will be valuable for you. And, and then behind the scenes, it's going to take notes and says, all right, Ravi likes making podcasts. <laughs> Keep that. So maybe tomorrow, if you ask the, you know, can you give me a real world example Conmigo is probably more likely to say, well, imagine you're trying to create a new podcast business and you have to hire an editor and you have to do this. And, you know, but to your point, the student, we have a place where we call this AI insights. The student can see what notes the AI has taken on them and say, that's not true anymore. Or that was never true. <laughs> I don't know how it made that inference, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, but, and also parents and teachers can get summaries because the AI can tell the, the teacher, hey, did you know that Ravi is really into podcasting? You might want to help support <laughs> them on that hobby. Um, but yeah, that's what we're doing. We, we want it to build a memory of the student, but we want to make that hyper-transparent and controllable to the, for, for both the, the, the students and adults. And so you've now gotten results back from this pilot because this wasn't available to everybody, if I understand correctly. So you you gave it on a limited basis to certain districts and students, and then your team has collected data on this. What did you learn about this first year? Well, it's still very early. I mean, you know, all of this stuff launched in March of 2023. So you, we had like two months of the school year left. We had to get through a bunch of the paperwork of, of school districts. Good. I mean, a lot of it's justified of, you know, privacy and data. And, and obviously people were with AI were even more... Um, but we got through that with a, a several school districts. And so we started piloting it then. And then obviously summer happened. Now we have actually about 50,000 students and teachers in real school districts using Conmigo on a regular basis. And we are just starting the, call it efficacy with a capital E type studies to see how it's affecting learning. That's going to take a little bit longer. But we've already been able to see, first, is it at all doing harm? As far as we can tell, it's increasing engagement in the learning. Kids are dropping off less. There are some things we're trying to make sure where the teacher has a little bit more control of being able to talk to George Washington's very cool, but maybe you need to be working on your math right now. So we, we're trying to make sure that teachers have, have ways of focusing students on, on what they need to work on. Uh, but overall, it's been very, very positive. Uh, that's great. And, and final question for you, just what's on the horizon, like even if in broad strokes, like what do you, what is your team thinking about? Are you adding subjects to the traditional side of things? Are you expanding the AI to other subjects, all of the above, working to get AI in front of more students? S simple answer is all of the above on the, let's call it traditional Khan Academy side, expanding the subjects and grades. You know, math and science, we've always been strong. We go from pre-K all the way through early college. 
We're going to be doing the same thing in English language arts. We're doing a civics course with the National Constitution Center. History and other things we've already had, and we're building on all of those things. We have Khan Academy Kids for the early learning crowd, which is all subjects for ages two to seven. So we have all of that. And then the AI layers on top of that. Everything that we just talked about is going to have a sense of memory. You're going to be able to have conversations with it, verbal conversations, uh, audio, voice conversations with it. It's already reporting back to parents and teachers summaries of a classroom or insights that it has on a student. Uh, Expect to see Conmigo transcend Khan Academy in the not too far future, where it will be with you wherever you are on the internet. And it can help make give you context. It can help protect you if you're a young person from things that you should not be seeing. It can report back to parents and teachers and be a bit of a guardian angel. Teachers can assign Conmigo activities. They could say things like, hey, for tonight, I want you to talk to Marie Curie, the simulation of her, and I've given you a mystery element uh, with some data, and you and Marie need to figure out what element y'all are looking at. But it could also be, I want you to read this New York Times article, and Conmigo is going to quiz you uh, on it afterwards to make sure you read it and report back to me who understood it or what er, what things you, you're having trouble understanding. I expect to have more parent tools, uh, even on things that help parents be parents. <laughs> like, hey, how do I get my kid to go to bed on time or mm. get them motivated, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, there's there's a lot coming down the pipeline. I could I could tell you an hour uh, all of the things that are that are happening. More tools for district leaders, and so they can monitor all of this. More, you know, all of all the rest. Well, Sal, bless you for everything you've done. I've seen it, you know, change the lives of my students. You know, they absolutely loved the tool, um, and I imagine in districts all across the world, people feel the same way. And, uh, you know, just keep doing what you're doing. We're big fans over here. And thank you for being so generous with your time. No, great. Thanks a lot, Robbie. Thanks for having me.